Welcome to Retire to a Life You Love with Michelle Gessner from Gessner Wealth Strategies. We inspire executives, professionals, and business-savvy women to better their finances and overcome the financial stresses of life. We do all of this by giving the advice you need to identify your goals and the confidence to achieve them so you can retire to a life you love. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to win financially as Michelle draws from years of expertise and talks with today's top business minds about their wins, failures, and best practices. Hello, and welcome to Retire to a Life You Love with your host, Michelle Gessner. I'm Wendy McConnell. Good afternoon, Michelle. How are you? Hi, Wendy. I'm good. I'm trying to stay cool in the Houston heat. How about you? Yes, it's it's a hot summer. That is for sure. So the hot summer can mess up your summer plans. And today we're going to talk about how you can mess up your retirement plan, right? Yeah, so definitely want to talk about some of the landmines. You can avoid making these kinds of mistakes. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the good, the bad and the ugly, mostly the ugly today. (laughs) Uh, Right? Yeah. So we're going to go over some of the big picture mistakes that you've seen people make that can actually hurt their retirement plan. So when, when we're going through these, we want to be making sure we're not doing them. Correct? That's right. Right. So yeah, I, I want people to learn from other people's mistakes before they make them, if at all possible. So what is the first thing that we are going to be discussing? All right. So just for for my listeners benefit, I'm not putting these mistakes in any priority order. So just the first mistake is not necessarily more, more important or less important than, than other things I'm going to talk about, but just had to put it in some kind of order. So, so the first item I want to address is not having an adequate emergency fund. I see this a lot. We don't think about it. We we just don't. A lot of people are living, you know, maybe paycheck to paycheck, or maybe they have plenty of money, but they just don't put something together for emergencies. And that can be a big mistake. So we we just never know when something is going to happen. And what we don't want is to have to sell your investments that are currently in the market and let, let's just say the market happens to be down right when you need that money. So money in the in the market, that is not emergency money. That is money that's being invested for the long haul. If it's not for the long haul, it shouldn't be in the market. So an emergency fund is liquid money that has no chance of, of loss. You know, we know that the market can lose money in the short term if you need it. And it just so happens the market's down, as I as I just mentioned. So an adequate emergency fund would be money that is in a very conservative account. It could be a savings account. It can be a CD. It can be other cash equivalents, such as a fixed annuity that has a guaranteed interest rate, as opposed to a fixed index annuity or a variable annuity, something with a guarantee. It can be a high yield savings account. Now I said fixed annuity, but that's not the ideal place to store emergency funds because there is a liquidity issue there. They don't just let you remove everything or you wouldn't earn an interest rate. There is a 
10% free withdrawal and anything above that, you would incur a penalty. Uh, one thing that I did want to ask before you get to how much you should have into your emergency fund, as you mentioned, a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck. Can you speak to how you go about building an emergency fund when you're so strapped to begin with? Yeah, that's that's a great, great question. So building an emergency fund means taking a look at your expenses. Now, this is the most tedious task people hate to do, myself included, but it is such an important task. So this means looking at what you spend and what you can do if you're not already tracking your, your expenditures and who, who really likes to do that, right? It's like tracking your food. Nobody yeah. wants to do that. Not at but, all. But it, speaking of tracking, and I'm not suggesting everyone needs to track, although we tend to pay attention to that which we track. So if you want to get one of the many expense trackers out there, there's apps, you can do that. And then you can have an idea of wh where your money's going. But let's say you hate doing that and you're just trying to figure out what you can save for your emergency fund. Then I recommend going back to your bank statements for, for the, maybe the last month or three months, going to look at your credit card statements if you tend to use a credit card to buy things. So people are usually spending their money through debit cards or credit cards. Usually people don't use a lot of cash because if it, when if you do, well, then you're, you're going to have a really hard time tracking where your cash went. So that's why I recommend the tracker if that's you. But go back and look at your statements for a month and and then categorize your, your expenditures. This is how much I spent on groceries. This is how much I spent on my mortgage and, and so on. And if you see things that you spent money on that you don't really care about, then you can put that amount of money in your little savings potential number. Now you can add up what you can potentially save every month. And then what I suggest is that you pay yourself first which I actually had listed as an, as an item on, on 10 ways to mess up your retirement plan. So since I'm bringing this up, I'm just going to address that. That was an item. No mechanism in place to pay yourself first is a big mistake. So once you look at your expenses and you've identified how much you could potentially save because this, this, and that are not important to you, now you can set something up that is automatic. And I really strongly recommend that it's automatic and automatic pay yourself first. So what I'm talking about is an automatic transfer from your paycheck to your savings account on a paycheck basis. So twice a month, however often you're paid, if you don't want to do it twice a month, do it once a month, but do it. Now that money is, is, is going out of your paycheck and that which we don't see, we don't typically spend. It's kind of like having a plate of food in front of you. If there's only one piece of chocolate cake on your plate, you're going to eat one piece of chocolate cake. If you have three pieces of chocolate cake on your plate, chances are good you're going to eat all three pieces. So if it's not there, <laughs> then you won't spend it. And that's that mechanism that will help you save. Okay. Now, if you're thinking, Wendy, well, I just don't have any money to save. Everybody has money they can save with, with some exceptions, right? There are people who are truly living on the edge. They just don't have, you know, money, but most likely there are things that you're spending your money on that you don't even care about. And perhaps it could be something else. Like when's the last time you checked your 
cell phone bill. Are you really on the best plan? Because I can tell you right now, they're not going to call you up and say, hey, Wendy, we have a plan for more minutes that is less money. Would you like to sign up for that? I've been waiting for that call, Michelle. (laughs) You're going to have a long wait. And that's the same with your homeowner's insurance and various other big ticket items that we spend money on that let's, let's face it, we just haven't looked at for a while. So these are ways of getting savings into your savings account so that you can have an adequate emergency fund. Okay. Now tell us about how much it should be. Okay. So there is, there, there are two answers to that. If you are still working, you are not retired and you are a single person. So it's just you and your household. Then the answer is probably one year's worth of your living expenses. If there are two of you working, then maybe you can only have to carry six months worth of living expenses. So you have to know your living expenses right back to that tracking of your expenses again. Now, I do want to just put a little bit of a an addition to that. If you if you're a household with two people working and one of you is banking your entire paycheck, obviously you can live on one income. You can maybe you don't need an emergency fund cuz you already got that going on. But most people that's not the case. They spend what they earn. So, 6 months of living expenses, maybe up to a year if you're conservative. And this is for people who are currently working. You have to think about how marketable are you if you lose your job? Would it take you a year to find another job? Well, then you probably need a year's worth of living expenses. Are you a hot ticket item that could find another job in three months? Well, maybe then no more than six months of living expenses. Now, if you're retired, I recommend at least a year, year's worth of living expenses, maybe even two And when I say living expenses in this case for retired people, I'm talking about living expenses that are not already covered by a pension or by social security income because a pension, pension, your monthly pension check and your monthly social security check, that's going to come no matter what. So if, so subtract that out of your equation, living expenses that are not already covered by those two streams of income, if you have that going on. If you're not yet on social security, well, then it's your living expenses. And I recommend about a year's worth, maybe two, again, depending on how conservative you want to be. I also recommend not just having that money just sitting there. So what are we going to be doing then with our money if we don't want it just sitting there? Yeah. So, so I recommend it needs to earn something. Now, interest rates have risen dramatically over the last year. So if your money is just sitting in a savings account, it's probably earning point zero zero nothing. And you may be surprised to know if you are checking things out that CDs, even a three-month CD is paying over 5%. A three-month CD, that was not the case a couple of years ago. So you could get, maybe lock up some of your money in a CD, maybe lock it up or not lock it up, but maybe put it in a high-yield savings account. Those are even earning interest. And those allow you to write about four or five checks a month. So those are pretty liquid. So your money needs to be in an interest-bearing account. Tell us what else. What else are the mistakes, the things that are going to mess up retirement? All right. Well, here's a big one. Okay. We're talking about emergency funds. Now, the other side of the coin is overdoing it, right? So now you got people who stockpile cash in savings accounts 
well over and above an adequate emergency fund. So these are folks that are just sitting on a boatload of cash that's just sitting there earning 0.00 nothing. Or maybe they're earning a little tiny bit of yield, like high yield savings account. But if you've got way more than your adequate emergency fund, that money needs to be invested unless it is earmarked for a purchase. If you're planning to buy something in the next year and maybe even the next two years, you're buying, you're saving money for a down payment on a house, for example, or you plan to buy a boat or whatever. Okay. That money should not be in the market because that's too short term. But if you have just no real purpose for that money, it's just sitting in the market. Chances are, are sitting outside of the market. Chances are good that you're just afraid to put it in the market and you're stockpiling cash for some other reason. You know, there's this little thing called inflation that people just, we're, we're pretty aware of it now because it's made so many headlines in the last couple of years, but inflation is real. Inflation is not your friend. Inflation erodes your purchasing power and makes your dollars less potent to buy what you need for your retirement. So if it's just sitting in something that's earning 4%, that may not be adequate for your retirement goals. Maybe that money needs to go into the market. That's where a financial plan comes into play because I'm just talking in generalities. I don't know what your particular spending needs are. I don't know what your time horizon is. I don't know what you want to do in retirement. I don't know how long you plan to work and when you'd like to retire and all these other questions that need to be answered. But a, a good financial plan is going to answer how much for each of these. I'm just giving you some general things to go by. Hi, it's Michelle. As you listen to today's episode, you may be wondering about your own situation and whether you've done all that you can to prepare yourself for the retirement you love. If you're not sure, it's a good idea to reach out and not leave things to chance. I want to help, so let's connect for a call. You can find all of my contact information, including my social channels, in today's show notes. Now, let's get back to today's program. What are some of the other things? All right, so getting out of the stock market when it's doing poorly. Now, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to sell, sell, sell. <laughs> that's exactly what you're not supposed to do. Uh, so that's what what's called market timing, right? Trying to time the market. Oh, the market's down, time to sell. Oh, the market's up, time to buy. What you're actually doing here is exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. You are buying high and selling low. And that's not a smart move. You want to buy low and sell high. So when the when the market is doing poorly, and let's say you're already in the market, and let's say you are in a pretty good investment plan, maybe even if you're not in a good investment plan, it's just not the time to sell when the market went down. The market typically goes down if you look at, at history, history of the market. You know, if you look at since World War II, say 1946, the market has gone down 14 times since 1946. That's 77 years. So if you do the math, the market is up, most mostly up 71% of the time. Now it's going to go down every, what, five years, I think is the math. So on average, this is not exact because we think things are different, but on average, historically speaking, the market goes down once every five years. Now, if that's the case, then 
you got to come to expect that the market will go down, which is why we don't invest mar- uh, money into the market when you plan on purchasing something in the next two to three years, because we know the market's going to go down on average once every five years. And conversely, we know the market will go up. If it didn't go up, no one would invest in it. Um, what is the market? The market is nothing but profit-seeking companies. Are there profit-seeking companies in this world, Wendy? <laughs> yeah. If you believe that companies seek to make a profit, then you should not be worried about investing in the market for money you do not need in the next two or three years. If it's if it's longer term than that, you can invest in the market and how much you should invest and what what allocation, all those questions need to be personalized to, to all these things that we, we would have to find out about you. But you should stay in the market when it goes down because it will come back up. We also know that when the market declines, research has shown that after market declines, there's a rapid increase in market returns. So they've, they've done, they being the, the, the people that gather and research this kind of uh, data, you know, I'm looking at a slide to my right because I want to get it right. There's been returns after 10% market declines, 20% market declines and 30% market declines. And they measured one year after the market decline ended three years and five years. And these are all double digit returns throughout the last 75 years going, I think the research went from 1926 to December of 2021. That's a lot of data. Oh yeah. So if you can just sit and wait, and this is why, you know, you hear advisors say, stay the course, stay the course, because that's what the market does. It comes back. And when it does, it comes back with a vengeance. What we don't know is exactly when it's going to go down and when it's going to come back up. But if you're trying to do that, market timing, oh, I'm going to keep my cash out of the market because it's it's going down and I'm going to put it back in when I think it's safe, you're probably going to get it wrong. And if you get it right once, you're probably not going to get it right twice. To do market timing perfectly and to do it right, you'd have to be right twice when to get out of the market and when to come back in the market. So unless you just have some inside information in which case you're going to probably get in trouble with the SEC. You're just going to have a really hard time in doing this so-called market timing. So what if I have all of my money in Apple stock and that's what I'm just going to keep it. I'm going to keep it at Apple because they're the best and I love Apple. And, you know, we're just going to put all our money there. That's okay, right? No, it's not okay. You knew I was going to say that, Wendy. So you're talking about holding too much of one stock position, your favorite stock, Apple in this case. Maybe dad worked at Exxon and left you a huge amount of Exxon stock, and and now you don't want to sell it because it reminds you of your dad and he's no longer with you and you've got an emotional attachment to that Exxon stock. Whatever your favorite stock is, if you have too much of one stock position, that's what we call concentration risk. And that's another big mistake. That's a good way to mess up your retirement plan because now you're kind of gambling. We just don't know which company is going to have the next problem. You don't want to have a big impact from any one company. We have diversification for a reason. That's diversification is your friend. That's the the biggest driver of returns. So we diversify across asset classes. which are things like large cap, small cap, US large cap, international small cap. These are all asset classes. Real estate is an asset class. 
all of those. So we diversify across asset classes. We diversify across industry sectors. We don't want too much in tech. We don't want too much in real estate. We don't want too much in financial type sectors. So every sector is is part of the plan, but you don't want too much in one company, one asset class, one sector. And geography is another one. If you have everything in the US, you're leaving money on the table because some of the biggest stable companies that are household names are not US companies. Shell Oil, Nestle, Sony. I mean, there's just so many of them. So it's a mistake to have bias with one company or just a few companies or just a few asset classes that are your pet asset classes and, and so on. This is diversification and it's meant to protect you from swings in the market. You want to have a good risk versus return ratio. You don't want to have a bigger impact from a, a market da- a downturn than you need to have. Right. I've always heard that renting is a waste of money. Is that true? Wendy, that, that is not true. So it can be a waste of money. What? It can I've heard be. That my whole life. <laughs> well, okay. So like anything else, it depends, right? My favorite answer, it depends. Renting can be a waste of money, but it depends. You have to look at so many other things. So how long do you plan to live in that house? Is it just a short time because your company tends to move you around? And they don't offer you a relocation plan where they pay all the closing costs. If that's the case, maybe renting is not a waste of money. Hey, if your company pays all your reload costs and 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 you get promotions and or transfers here and there, okay, buy a house. They're they're taking care of you. But otherwise, maybe you should rent. What about thinking about the big picture? Are you someone who is making the mistake of just thinking about the mortgage payment? You know, let's say you're buying a house. Oh, I can afford the mortgage payment, but that's all you can afford. Maybe, maybe you're not thinking about the taxes, the property taxes. You're not thinking about the homeowner's insurance, the repair and maintenance on that house. I mean, those are all real furnishing the house. Oh my gosh, you got to buy furniture for the house. So these are all costs of owning a house. It's not just rent versus my principal and interest payment on a mortgage. There's so many other costs to owning. Maybe renting is better for you for that reason. Uh, a, a retired person taking care of the house. Who's taking care of this house? Are you mowing the lawn? Are you able to afford someone else mowing the lawn? When things break, do you have the wherewithal to, to manage that? So it's not just one size fits all. Renting can can be a waste of money and maybe sometimes it's not. What if I have a financial advisor that I really like? My husband has one that he really likes. Is it okay to have them at different firms? You, it, it's not, it's not wise. I, I'm, I'm assuming you and your husband have your money together, that you're yeah. a household that, all right. Cause, cause some so husbands and wives. some of the money there and we put mm-hmm. some of the money at the other place. All right. But you, you consider your money together. Yes. Okay. And the reason I ask that is there are some marriages where the money is completely separate. I see that it's not uncommon, but if the money is, is managed or, or, or it's, you consider it his and hers together, or maybe it's not even a married couple. It's just a single person. There is really no good reason that I can think of for having accounts scattered around. So this advisor does this 
account and takes care of that one. Maybe you have some other custodians, like you have Charles Schwab for this account and that account. And then you have Fidelity over here and you have another custodian over there. That gets really confusing and it becomes very difficult for you to have a cohesive and diversified portfolio because the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. How can you have a fully diversified and orchestrated investment managed portfolio if everything's scattered all over the place? Now, if if you're worried that the custodian could go out of business or you know it's insolvent, um, I've, I've had someone say that to me, oh my gosh, what if Charles Schwab goes belly up? I don't want my money in one place. Have you ever heard of that, Wendy? Is that something that bothers you or have have you heard of it, thought of it? No, I mean, you know, they're they're pretty stable companies that, you know, we're we're referencing, but um anything's possible. Yeah, sure, anything is possible, but let's talk about probability and okay. also let's talk about the the security guarantees that are in place because mm. if someone is thinking, "Oh, well, I've got to diversify because things could go out of out of business." I mean, we just had that Silicon Valley Bank fail, right? So what if I put all my money in one custodian and and, and it fails? Well, did you know that the large custodians like Fidelity, Schwab, TD Ameritrade have a ton of insurance? Did you know that not only do you have the protection of the FDIC on, on your cash over there and the SIPC for, for $500,000 worth of securities, but you also have that the custodians put in place up to $149 million worth of insurance protection for securities per investor through Lloyd's oh. of London and up to $2 million for cash. Now I'm just speaking in general. I mean, maybe it might vary just a tiny bit between custodians, but this is if let's just say, God forbid somebody there's insolvency, that's a lot of insurance and the aggregate is also huge. So if you know something dreadful were to happen, it's just not probable. Okay. that you would get caught up in losing money. So you have to think about what's the possibility of that happening, very small. And, and then you got the insurance I just talked about. And what's the downside of having things scattered all over the place? Well, there's a big downside for, for the average investor because it's hard to manage. It's hard to diversify. It's hard to understand what's going on. Um, and and most people are not going to be able to, to take you know do the things they need to do to make sure that things are properly invested. Let's talk about debt. We shouldn't have any debt, right? Well, debt isn't my favorite word, right? So debt is nobody's favorite word, no. but not all debt is bad. You can have some good debt. So if we're talking about credit card debt, I don't like credit card debt, especially now. Have you seen what the interest rates are with credit card debt? I've seen it. Yes. I mean, it's just gone up. They, the, yeah, it's always been high, but now it's just a lot astronomical. So, credit card debt is bad. I don't want to see people carrying a balance. Pay that thing off. Get your spending in check where you can pay off your credit cards every month. But not all debt is bad. So, your mortgage, your home mortgage, is not necessarily bad. First of all, the interest rate is well. It's I think right now it's about. 7% for a 30-year loan, which is higher than what we're used to. But that interest is tax deductible. Secondly, if you have a choice between paying off your house and putting money away for your future, and it's one or the other, 
I'm here to tell you, don't pay off your house. You, I've, I've seen people become house rich and cash poor, right? So you, great. You have a paid off house and you have no money to live that, you know, who wants to, to live like that? If you have a paid off house and you don't have money to live, you don't have retirement savings for the life that you want to live. You can't get to that equity in your house unless you sell it or you have a line of credit. But then again, a line of credit is debt. Right. So you have to be smart. I'm, I don't think it's, it's a race to get your house paid off. You can pay off your house while you are saving for retirement. It is not one or the other. It's not black and white. I have seen people be in such a rush to pay off their house that they leave themselves with no cushion, no emergency fund. Mm -hmm. Back to that discussion. They are not adequately adding to their retirement accounts or any other accounts that they have for other spending goals. So it's just not that simple to just get that mortgage paid off. Also, people ask me, well, what should I get a 30 year mortgage or a, or a 10 or 15 year mortgage? And the answer varies with all the things that have to be asked to, to give you an adequate answer. But I can tell you this, if you get a 30 year mortgage, you can always turn it into a 15 year mortgage by making double payments. Right. But you can't do that. If, if you get a 15 year mortgage and then you lose your job, you know, you still have that 15 year mortgage payment that you have to pay. Whereas the 30 year mortgage payment, which is lower, would be a lot easier for, for you. And you can always double up in times that are good. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Michelle, we have two left. Okay. So let's have them. All right. Well, not, not doing tax planning, ignoring that, right? Tax planning. You hear me talk about this all the time, Wendy. You, you know, we've got a lot of discussion about tax planning. But not taking interest in tax planning is a mistake. And I'm not talking about doing your taxes or, or preparing your tax return. I'm talking about what tax strategies are relevant for you that you can put into place right now so that you can insulate your money in the future from rising tax rates, because we believe taxes have nowhere to go but up. So there may be some strategies that are, are great for you. Maybe not. But what are they? What what could let's take a look. You know, can we do tax loss harvesting for your investments in a declining market? Can we do, are you old enough for the QCD, qualified charitable uh distribution? Because you you give to charity and you're you're old enough to take that. A lot of people don't even know what that is. I'm not gonna name them all, but there are lots of strategies that, you know, Roth conversion, right? That can work for you. Are you are you putting money in a Roth? Maybe you can't do a conversion, but you can. Your, your company has a Roth 401k. Maybe your company has a Roth 401k and you're eligible to do a Roth IRA and you didn't know that you can do both at the same time. You can. So these are the kinds of things that really make a difference. Before I leave that topic, I just want to give you an example of something that came across my desk and just blows my mind. There is, we had a, we had a declining market last year and if you are one of these folks that has lots of deductions on your tax return, let's just say that's you, you know, maybe you own some real estate and you get, you have passive income and you know, deductions and, and you end up with a zero tax return. Now, not too many have that. Not too many people have that, but let's say that's you. I've seen where people have no, do no Roth conversions, even in that situation. And that just blew my mind. That was a lost opportunity. 
here we have a declining market. Everything's on sale. The valuation from the tax man is also on sale. And you happen to have no tax due. You had the whole 12% bracket open to you to make a Roth conversion. But if no one is looking at that for you, maybe uh, you miss that. So mm. just, just make sure that, that adequate tax planning strategies are being looked at every year. Okay. So what's this last one? Well, I, I see some people, this is married couples now, my fill in the blank, my wife, my husband is managing the money. So I don't need to pay attention. I've got news for you. You do have to pay attention. Even if you don't enjoy managing money or you don't take an interest in it, you should know what's going on and don't overestimate the ability of your partner. Maybe your partner is is a whiz. Maybe your partner is very good. That's that's good. But they'd have to have the right tools, the time. You need to have both skill and tools to do a good job managing the money. And maybe your partner is is all that. That's great. But you should still know what's going on because what happens if something happens to your partner and you don't know where anything is? You don't know how things are being invested. You don't know anything about it because you've just left it to your partner. So that's, that's a, that's a mistake in, in my opinion. Okay. So what should we all keep in mind then? So what you should keep in mind is that there's a lot to get right and a lot to get wrong and overestimating your own ability and not understanding all the little things that, that all the little pieces uh, that go together can cost you money in the long run. So you know, I may be biased because I'm a financial planner, but I really believe that it's an investment to have someone help you. It is not a cost. It is an investment that pays value and it pays to use kind of a little trite term. It pays dividends. Vanguard did a, a famous study back in 2017 where they evaluated the, you know, they, they compared an investor who uses who, who pays a fee to a professional to manage their money versus the investor who, who does it themselves and doesn't have to pay a fee. And it was really interesting what they found. This was a research paper, a white paper that you can, you can find, and we can also list it in the show notes, that the investor who used professional help, a full service, good professional, ended up with returns that were net 3% more than, than the investor who, who did not get professional help. And this is because, and this is according to their study, this is because the professional is looking at a disciplined rebalancing strategy, tax loss harvesting, asset location, behavioral counseling. You know, don't, don't, don't do that to yourself. That's a costly mistake, keeping you from, from doing things that, that actually could hurt you. And they, they list a whole bunch of things. And what their study does not include is some of the things I just talked about. That's not even including financial planning. It didn't include tax planning. It didn't include some of the things that we do, like, you know, risk management, you know, reviewing your estate planning documents, all of the things that make up full service financial planning. So make sure that you're not, you don't know what you don't know kind of thing and, and be willing to, to get it right. Cause there's just so much to lose if it's wrong. Okay. Well, this has been very awakening for us, Michelle, eye opening and what we need to be aware of. So how can people get in touch with you if they have more questions? Yeah. So if you have questions, you're always welcome to reach out to us at gessnerwealthstrategies.com. 
and there's a little contact us. You can call us, you can email us, you can text us. We're available to you, guestnerwealthstrategies.com. All right, please like, follow, and share this podcast. We thank you so much for joining us today. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to Retire to a Life You Love with Michelle Gessner from Gessner Wealth Strategies. We hope you were inspired to take steps to your financial freedom as you learned new techniques and strategies for managing your finances. To learn more about how you can improve your financial landscape, visit our website at www.gessnerwealthstrategies.com. That's G-E-S-S-N-E-R wealthstrategies.com. Or give Michelle and her team a call at 713-589-6448. And don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes are available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Michelle Gessner or Gessner Wealth Strategies. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.